0: Yeah, so for a couple minutes on Saturday night, anybody visiting the scoreboard page would have seen Adrian as the number one team in the country. Like some file on our Presto Sports server had gotten corrupted just as I was walking out the door, and it made everything go haywire.
1: You got it fixed pretty quickly. But my favorite part might have been the mixed-up matchups, the big St. Lawrence-Texas-Lutheran clash that wasn't, and an unlikely belhaven muhlenberg matchup. You know, for a minute there, it was eye-opening and off-putting to see such an unfamiliar team ranked first.
0: Yeah, Adrian College, number one in Division Three, alphabetically. It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football, and here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Thanks, Dave. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We appreciate you downloading us and giving us a listen as we talk about Week Five of the 2016 Division Three football season. The podcast for October 3rd of 2016, and uh, it was a pretty good week. There's a lot of uh, stuff going on. Some. Big games and some big things happening to the purple powers at the top of the uh, rankings. So, uh, a welcome in Keith, and then we're going to dive right into I think the I would have to say is the game of the week because many of us picked it as the game of the week. Keith, uh, the uh, Whitewater Platteville game. Uh, we talked last week about the uh, you know quarterback. <sighs> Uh, rotations, let's put it that way, uh, with a, a handful of top Division three teams, and uh, Whitewater did the same, and it was working out for him on Saturday.
1: Well, yeah, it, it worked out the way on Saturday, maybe the the unexpected way, though, in that uh, Chris Nelson is the, the Whitewater quarterback with experience. He's the senior, but, but clearly, you know, they either, they, they wouldn't, if he was I guess so solid in his job, you know, they wouldn't be trying to to wedge Cole Wilbur, the sophomore from California, into the lineup, unless they really just liked the second quarterback and wanted to see him play. So, you know, when we talked about that last week at the other places, this is going on. Part of it is you want to see one quarterback play, and part of it is neither guy has has won the job so convincingly that um, you have to only go with that one. But the way it looked on Saturday, I thought, uh, you know, Cole Wilbur led the Warhawks on three of their scoring drives. On his first three possessions, he led them to the game winning touchdown in, in crunch time. And uh, it may eventually become Cole Wilbur's job.
0: He looked pretty good, uh, at least what I was able to see on video. I look forward to uh, seeing him in person on Saturday. I'm, I'm going to go down to Whitewater for uh, their game at home against Oshkosh. Um, let's see. Uh, key point in the game at the end, uh, Whitewater kicks a field goal to go up six with 2.42 to go. Tom Kelly, that's the Platteville quarterback, hit a couple of deep balls to get into Warhawk territory. But then uh, Pioneers are called for a hold. Uh, Kelly fumbles the ball, loses 19 yards, and then throws an interception on third and 27 to uh, seal that game up. But, uh, you know, for the last couple years, Keith, this is a game that uh, Whitewater had won two times in a row, 17-7. Ah, uh, this was a game that was much closer. It was a uh, it was a tie game in the fourth quarter.
1: Yeah, and we've seen this happen in in different conferences where a team that's sort of up and coming is trying to trying to break through, trying to get over the hump. Uh, one that comes to mind is Saint Lawrence and Hobart, where Hobart dominated the Liberty League for years, and Saint Lawrence tried and tried and tried to break through. I know there were other cases where the team never actually broke through, and in this case. Uh, This was a a big opportunity for for Wisconsin Platteville to to finally get, you know, get that breakthrough moment Um, and and to do it against uh, Whitewater, which is, you know, not only a six time national champion, but ranked in the in the top five this season. Platteville had crept up into the top 10, but you still need to see them do it. Uh, against a Whitewater, against Oshkosh. And, uh, you know, for, for portions of that game on Saturday, not only were they in the lead, but they were, uh, you know, going back and forth with Whitewater. And, and really, up until those, those final moments, they, they took care of the ball, didn't have turnovers until, uh, until the very end there. And, uh, you know, they didn't have any, any sort of running game to speak of. They finished with uh, 15 yards, negative 15 yards rushing on 18 carries, although we can't say it, it hurt them all that much because they passed for 435 yards. Kelly was sacked six times, which was a huge part of the, the defensive effort for Whitewater. And, uh, you know, even without the sack yardage, they would have only run for 21 yards on 12 carries. So very one-dimensional performance, but it was almost enough to get it done.
0: Well, Emmendorfer's been pretty open over the course of uh, however long that they've been good now. Is that maybe five, six years, something like that, that uh, they're pretty happy being one-dimensional, and that one dimension's been pretty good for them. Yeah, I mean, Emmendorfer
1: is a guy who I'm, I'm sure I've made this comment on the podcast before. He literally wrote the book on, on um, spread offense. If you search online, there's a, there's a uh, Wisconsin-Platteville offensive uh, tutorial on how to how to spread teams out, and this has been uh, I've seen this I don't know five ten years ago before they were even really good. So they've uh, they've gotten they've gotten to the point where Oshkosh and and where Whitewater is now, where they're at the top of the best conference in the country. They're competing with those teams. Um, that you know whenever they have a good quarterback, and for the past few years, uh, give give or take, it's been one of the Kellys uh, as a uh, as a great quarterback for them they've they're they're right there and and you know they just have to have one of those breakthrough games and the the good thing for them uh in the wac this season is that right now it looks like a three-team race with whitewater with oshkosh uh stevens point still undefeated and you know there's an opportunity even though now they're one game back uh, of whitewater for the conference lead there's an opportunity for
0: someone else to knock off the warhawks and for platteville to remain in the race Three-way tie, very possible. Of course, uh, a lot of that will be answered on Saturday because not only does uh, Oshkosh go to Whitewater, like I mentioned, but uh, Platteville and Stevens Point meet up as well. Uh, one last thought on this game, and I'll uh, uh, and we'll move on. But uh, the the big uh, the big target for Platteville, Dan Arnold had a fantastic game, ten catches for 184 yards and a touchdown. Uh, had a big catch on the uh, on the final drive that uh, kind of got them into position to at least have a shot at having a shot you can have a shot at having a shot right um so uh, yeah that's a that's a name we will continue to hear i'm sure
1: yeah and actually one other quick thing i should add is that the thing that continues to impress me about whitewater is that the you know the more things change whether the names change, whether the coaching staff changes, the more their formula seems to stay the same. Um, you know they've changed the offense a little bit over the years, but defensively they still get so much pressure up front. Big day on Saturday from Brandon and from John Flood. Those are they're getting sacks from their defensive line, and if you're getting sacks from the defensive line, that means you're not blitzing safeties and linebackers. You're able to drop seven guys in coverage, and you're able to cause those turnovers when uh, when it, when they really need them, and and that's what happened. On Saturday, they got the pressure up front. They got they didn't get the turnovers till late in the game, but in crunch time, they got them.
0: In other purple power news, uh, I don't know if Mountain Union looked a little shaky on Saturday. I know that uh, a handful of people dropped them out of the number one spot on their top twenty-five ballot. On uh, Sunday morning, uh, Purple Raiders beat Ohio Northern 38-21, but one of those scores is a 100-yard interception return for a touchdown by Danny Robinson. Another one is a bad snap off of a punt. Uh, Uncharacteristic uh, struggles. I know it's hard to say struggle in a game that you win by 17 points, but so many ways in in which this was not a typical game for Mount Union. Well, you, you took the words out of my mouth.
1: You know, only at Mount Union is a 17-point win where you put up 38 points, and again, all those points aren't on the offense. But, you know, you 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 win pretty convincingly, and it's not convincing enough because it's not normal Mount Union. Right now, they're still going through, a, a, I guess, a learning process, for lack of a better way to put it. A uh, It's almost like a, a ongoing tryout, I guess, for uh, to, you know, to figure out who their quarterback's going to be. And it's weird that, you know, you have two of these top 10 teams or top five teams in, uh, in Mary Harden Baylor with Blake Jackson in um, Linfield with Sam Riddle, clear who their quarterback's going to be. And then two of the other uh, top five teams in Mountain Union and Whitewater going back and forth with quarterbacks. But Mountain Union uh, got a 13 for 17 day from Luke Porman but only 137 yards passing seven of 10 from D'Angelo Fulford. Um, no interceptions for either of them. Only 67 yards passing for Fulford. Um, a, a big rushing day again for B.J. Mitchell on the heels of his huge day last week against Baldwin Wallace. He goes 23 for 129 yards and a touchdown. So right now, Mountain Union still getting it done um, with the running game offensively, and, and, you know, the strength of what they had returning on offense was the offensive line and running backs. But the, the thing I think that may, may stand out, I guess, is how they played defensively.
0: Yeah, um, so they allowed Wilfried to throw for 337 yards on him. Uh, they, they did pick him off three times, but I think even more uncharacteristically, Keith, uh, Christian Williams ran for 128 yards, and I, I, I'm, I'm at a loss to consider how many times uh, a running back not from Wisconsin Whitewater has run for that many yards on Mount Union lately.
1: Yeah, Mount Union, really, they're, they've hung their hat the past... Maybe more than five years. I'm I'm th- thinking back to you know late maybe 2009 2010. They've hung their hat on on great defense most seasons. You know there was the year where they uh, had like six or seven shutouts to start the season. Um, there you know there are definitely times when you don't see uh, anybody get anything going on them unless they're one of the sort of the top three teams in the OAC or or when they get in the playoffs. So yeah, this is not right now a finished product offensively. Not a finished product defensively, but as we say often from Mountain Union, they're so good that they don't have to be a finished product, at least until some point later in the season, they'll still see John Carroll down the line, they'll, they'll be in the pl- playoffs more than likely and and be in there for. You know, three, four, maybe five weeks. So that's when you, you Mountain Union really needs to turn the corner. Sometime between now and then. And uh, you now, now that they've they've gotten Ohio Northern out of the way, you get you get a couple of uh, uh, easier games. Not not easy games because there's you know there's still Heidelberg, but um, Baldwin Wallace not looking as, as good as we thought. And I think it, it's going to be they may
0: cruise for a couple of weeks at some point. Uh, quick aside, Keith, what did you think of the OAC's number eight ranking in our, <laughs> our conference ranking? Not the one that you and I do in an August, but uh, the, the one that uh, Adam Turr did for D3Football.com this past week.
1: Well, you know, a long time ago when we first did the conference rankings, part of the logic for putting the OAC up so high was not just that it had Mount Union, but that it always had a second contender in the postseason, and that it was one of the two conferences in D3 that churned out. NFL caliber talent here and there, but still did it. And it wasn't just Pierre Garcon getting lucky with one guy who was too good to be playing in D3. It was uh, Jason Trusnick and Jamal Robertson and um, the guys from Heidelberg who are in the NFL, um, Mike Preston and Dante Dye. It was, um, you know, Cecil Shorts from Mountain Union. So the, the that, to me, spoke to the level of player who who's in the OAC. But the drawback for the OAC for so long has been... It's top heavy and bottom weak, and because there's only one non-conference game, you don't really get to see a lot of interplay. You don't really know how good uh, a Muskingum would be if if it was in the, you know, the Heartland or the MIAA. So that's that's been the drawback, and, w- and one of the reasons that the Empire Eight, the MIAc, the WIAC have risen to the top and stay there is because those leagues, those conferences, and in some years the CCIW too, those conferences are so deep. You know, there's yeah. five, six, seven. Some years, you know, eight really good teams, or at least teams that would that would do well in uh, in conference play. So I think oh, eight is low, probably the lowest we've ever seen the OAC. But um, it's more a function of, I guess, where they are this year, but also a function of other other conferences just having more depth.
0: Let's see. Let's move on to number two conference news. That's uh, the MIAC, where uh, a, a couple of um, uh follow ups I guess from uh the previous week's Johnny Tommy game uh Jackson Erdman the St. John's quarterback uh out with a concussion uh, suffered in that game Jordan Roberts you know, the uh the offensive player of the year for d3football.com in 2015 running back for St. Thomas sounding like he's out for the season could get a medical hardship but you know neither of these teams particularly uh skipping a beat without them right now No I mean in once they got over playing each other last week you know it was
1: bound to get a little bit a little less difficult this week and going forward um the, you know the odd thing about Jordan Roberts of course is that the headline I believe I wrote this in kickoff was you know Jordan Roberts rushed for 2,000 yards last year comma and now he's healthy well he's <laughs> not he's not healthy Sorry. but we're we thought, he, you know, we thought he may have an even, an even better season than he had last year when he really burst on the scene.
0: I'm feeling um, really good about my kickoff pick, by the way, of him uh, getting fewer rushing yards this year. I think I've locked that up.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, if he doesn't play, uh, he certainly certainly would. But as you mentioned, St. Thomas not missing a beat. Uh, They're they just running by committee w- without Jordan Roberts, uh, Tucker Treadle. Had 19 carries. Josh Parks had 10 on Saturday, and two other running backs uh, saw action because it was a blowout win against Augsburg. And man, uh, as a quick aside, you know, Augsburg, uh, how huge was, was Ayrton Scott for them because they've sort of fallen way off uh, without him. 67 7, I believe, was the final on Saturday. And the Tommy defense uh, held Augsburg to 84 total yards, and 86 of those were through the air.
0: Yeah. Uh, I love saying stuff like that because that means that, uh, yes, that's negative two yards rushing. Uh, on the other side uh, at St. John's, so uh, Ben Alvord got the start at quarterback for the Johnnies, and he was 15-17 for 211 yards and three scores as they beat Bethel 42-27. And even that score is a little misleading because uh, Bethel scored twice in the final four minutes to uh, cut down that final margin.
1: Yeah, it's just surprising how how far Bethel's fallen because their their talent level still there. You watch it. Um, there are there are points during a game where you see you know a Bridgeport, um, Tusler you know, have a great play in the open field or run somebody over or something like that and and you wonder why Bethel doesn't do it more consistently but uh, they do they have a pretty tough schedule to start the season in St John's you know even without Jackson Erdman, looking really sharp this season.
0: Uh, let's move on and talk about uh, conference number six perhaps that's the New Jersey Athletic Conference, uh, in a, a conference that is. So, I don't know if topsy-turvy is the right word, but it's been a little bit unpredictable. Uh, It was so unpredictable that we decided to try to predict it in quick hits on Friday. And uh, let's just uh, take a look at how that went down on Saturday. So, Rowan goes from losing to Montclair State last week to beating Christopher Newport this week. Uh, And then Montclair State goes on to lose at William Patterson. Um, But that Rowan-CNU game, really an old-fashioned, kind of grinded-out game. Uh, neither team rushed for even as many as three yards of carry. And Keith, you had your eye on this game earlier, the one that uh, Rowan won, 10 to 7. What struck you? What were you seeing there?
1: Well, the two things. One, you mentioned it, it's just, it was just the type of weather that um, that suited the kind of game that Rowan plays. So those are the two things. The weather, you know, it was it was raining in this part of the Mid Atlantic from about Thursday through Sunday. And, uh, it was, so it was just terrible conditions for a game and Rowan likes to run the ball and play defense and keep the scores low scoring anyway. So it kind of went, went right into their hands. They got a, uh, a big break early with a, uh, with a turnover that set up a short touchdown. They went up 10 uh, zero in the first half and then Christopher Newport actually kept them off the board the rest of the game. But, uh, it, it was Rowan's style of game and, and they just, uh, you know, did it with good defense.
0: This uh, conference has been, as I mentioned, unpredictable. Of course, Salisbury sits at the top. Salisbury and Rowan, they're the two teams right now that have control of their own destiny and they face each other coming up this week.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, week to week right now in the NJAC, it's a, uh, you don't know who's going to take control. And, and maybe that's one reason why they floated up to, to six in the conference rankings because here's another conference with that depth. And, um, you know Salisbury is the only one right now who's still undefeated. Christopher Newport looked good for a minute, but I think the moment that Wesley um, took a conference loss, everybody else is uh, is suddenly their eyes open up because that's the that's the dominant team. And uh, you know if Wesley can be beaten, everybody else has an opportunity. Now Salisbury, from having been in the Empire Eight before coming to the NJAC, they're used to this. You know Sherman Wood's been doing this for 10, 12 years or however long it's been. Uh, you know going. Week in, and week out, having a tough game every week. So uh, Salisbury is used to having a, to, to you know, go from playing a tough game one week to turning around and now having to play Rowan. Rowan, on the other hand, um, they've seen Salisbury now uh, enough times to, to get a feel for what the, you know, the option offense will look like on, uh, on Saturday. But they need to play kind of a, a game of similar defensive quality to the, to the one they played on Saturday.
0: If you did not catch uh, Adam Turr's uh, ranking of the conferences, uh, you should go back, uh, look at the uh, columns uh, section on the homepage of D3Football.com, pick out Around the Nation, and then you got to go back to uh, last Thursday's column to get that. Um, we're going to talk about Conference 11 here before we take a break, and that's the uh, Iowa Intercollegiate Athletic Conference. Uh, Dubuque wins that uh, showdown. Central turned it over six times. Connor Feckley, the uh, Dubuque quarterback, throws five touchdowns in a 35-17 win. Um, you know, Keith, again, that's a game that uh, we kind of, uh, I would say all of us saw coming, but certainly I think about three or four of us uh, picked that game as a, uh, as a potential upset. I know what I was looking at was, you know, just the fact that uh, some of the teams that S- Central had beaten early on in order to achieve that ranking had kind of slipped back, or maybe we just didn't have enough information to really think that Whitworth uh, win was as important as it was, and I, I felt like uh, Dubuque was a... a you know, was a a team in position to make that ranking look a little foolish.
1: Well, you know, part of the reason why we were able to pick that one is because Central was ranked twenty fourth and Dubuque was just outside that in the in the also receiving vote. So when you're looking for an upset and and all the other upsets are sort of they either fit other categories in quick hits or they were just too obvious, you know, Platteville. Maybe beating Whitewater. It would be a huge upset. But on, on one hand, you know, they're both in the top 10. It's not that big of an upset. So one of the reasons we were able to, to pick that is because Central was ranked. Dubuque wasn't. We figured Dubuque was probably right there with Central. But it turned out they were more than right there with them. They were, they were you know, head and shoulders better in, in the 35-17 win. Uh, Blaze Barista filed that away for the all-name team at the end of the season. Uh, he had two interceptions for Dubuque and uh, also a fumble recovery.
0: Yeah, I just think that uh, Dubuque is the program that's had a little more sustained success recently, which, you know, if you had uh, if you pulled 2006 Pat Coleman out and set him here to listen to this podcast, he would go, what the heck are you talking about? Central was the team back in 2006. Dubuque was barely on the radar. Um, so Dubuque gets an early leg up in that conference race, but we can't ignore Coe either as they're off to a 5-0 start. And we'll talk about uh, Coe a little bit more in just a moment. But I- I'd like to take this time to mention that the Around the Nation podcast, currently sponsored by nobody, uh, you could be reaching an audience full of decision makers in Division three football, coaches who need new equipment, who can influence or drive decisions to purchase helmets, replace turf, all sorts of things by sponsoring the Around the Nation podcast Keith and I would be waxing poetic about your product right here before we went to break. So think about it and drop me an email at pat.coleman at d3sports.com. We had 950 listeners on our podcast this past week. Thank you, by the way, to the 950 of you. That's the most uh, for a single week podcast so far this season. So that's an opportunity that uh, you are missing out on by not sponsoring us. So, you know, sponsor us. Think about it. Uh, uh, turf field uh what is these days runs for you know somewhere in the high six figures um it doesn't cost anywhere near that much to uh, sponsor this podcast
1: so you're saying they they make their money back on one sale
0: i'm pretty sure all right make years worth of money back on one sale moving on to game balls uh, and i'm going to give my game ball to heitland from co that means i'm giving out two of them because uh, one goes to trevor he's a senior running back who went for 204 yards and a touchdown in the 37-34 win versus Warburg? while his brother, Drew, a junior defensive lineman, had six quarterback hurries, which, by the way, a stat under-tracked in Division III. That's in the stat program. Go ahead and use it, everybody. So uh, Coe is 5-0 in its first season under head coach Tyler Staker. He's the one who took over from his father, Steve Staker, this past offseason, and uh, Steve remains on staff as an assistant coach, and I'm, I'm guessing they're having a little bit of fun in Cedar Rapids right now because they're going really well.
1: My game ball goes to Denison safety Andrew Baird, who had 25 tackles, 9 solo and 16 assists against Ohio Wesleyan. Now, tackle stats are known to be unreliable, he was, but he was only credited with six stops two weeks ago. 25 tackles is a nice day's work. Just to put that in perspective, I played free safety and had 41 tackles once in a season. Baird has had 39 in the past two games. Uh, you know, some safeties are ball hawks, some are tacklers, and some can do both. Baird's team is off to a 4-0 start, so why don't we, why don't we give the big red some love? At 5'10", 188, Baird fits the D3 profile of a guy who isn't, who maybe isn't the most physically gifted, but who uses what gifts he has with smarts and love for the game. Denison and Ohio Wesleyan played for the 108th time on Saturday, and it's not a nationally significant rivalry or even the most well-known in the North Coast Athletic Conference, but it is a big deal to players on both campuses. Denison seniors, Baird included, will get to graduate with the satisfaction of having beaten the Battling Bishops four times. And Denison's been knocking on the door of being a nationally significant program the past couple seasons with six wins and seven wins in the same way Westminster of Pennsylvania got its chance to make D3 take notice on Saturday. Now, they didn't come through with a 45-35 30, loss to Thomas Moore. Denison gets a similar shot in a couple weeks at home under the lights against Wittenberg.
0: I like that game ball. That's, uh, that might be my favorite Keith McMillan game ball. Um, wow. Well done. I also did not read that uh, part of the rundown before you started going uh, running it down. So uh, I was uh, impressed. I got to move on. Uh, Sorry about that. Not to derail my own podcast. Let's see. Uh, teams on the rise in the poll. Um, well, how about Wisconsin-Platteville? That surprised a lot of people. But, uh, you know, our voters have a fairly steady history of moving teams up after close losses to really good teams. Uh, just last year, for example, happened with North Central lost by one point at home to Wesley. They moved up from 22-21. Uh, last year, when Platteville lost to Whitewater by 10 points, they moved up from 14-12. to But, you know, generally, our voters would look at an outcome like this. Uh, the number two team winning by six points at number eight, and think, all right, we were pretty much on the ball here. If it wasn't broke, they generally don't try to fix it. Um, No, This podcast is going to drop before we get to see the AFCA Top 25. That's uh, uh, otherwise referred to as the coaches poll. Uh, But I'm willing to bet. Uh, I'm not willing to bet actual money, so you can relax, NCAA folks. Uh, But I'm willing to bet that Platteville drops two or three spots in that poll just kind of based on how these teams got uh, treated last year. Not every loss is a bad loss, people and uh, that's not even including when D3 teams lose to scholarship schools. E- even every loss within Division 3 doesn't necessarily automatically uh, result in a team moving down the rankings. Well, Platteville was my riser in the poll as well,
1: and uh, I think I'm overtaking swipes at the coaches' poll, but I do think it's instructive to look at what we learn in a 30-24 to 24 game. Uh, UW-Platteville is pretty close to Whitewater, right? We learned that, and if we know the, the Warhawks, are worth being ranked number two, then the Pioneers can't be far behind. Now, if you're strictly a head-to-head voter, then all we know is that Platteville belongs somewhere below Whitewater. Likewise, all we know about Linfield is they belong below Mary Hardin Baylor and St. John's belongs below St. Thomas. Now, obviously, we can twist ourselves into all kinds of logic pretzels to try to justify our ballots, but I think what we learned about Platteville on Saturday is that they belong in the same top 10 as UW-Whitewater. Mm, logic pretzels. <laughs> the, the other thing we need to discuss besides how to make logic pretzels a, a thing that we sell, maybe we can sponsor our own podcast. There you go. Uh, we need to discuss... Mary Harden Baylor picking up one first place vote from Whitewater. So obviously someone out there was not all that impressed by the Platteville win and picking up three from Mount Union. Now, I didn't move the Purple Raiders on my ballot in either direction after the Ohio Northern win. The crew, however, they're ranked number three and have seven first place votes to number two, Whitewater's one, which is peculiar to say the least.
0: Yeah, there must be a pretty interesting spread. Uh, I I'm, can only assume, and I don't have this stuff in front of me, I probably should have in anticipation of this, um, that there must be a, a case or two in which uh, Mary Hardin-Baylor is you know, number four, number five on some people's ballots or something like that to, uh, to make that happen. Uh, and I don't know what to make of the voter who switched from Whitewater to Mary Harden baylor Maybe that's something that uh, Whitewater can win back next week if they beat Oshkosh, but I have no idea, so I didn't look to see who that was either because I'm not going to call out a voter for that because Mary Harden-Baylor is certainly a very reasonable number one team. I mean, they're, they're number one on my ballot right now. And, yeah, we can't take too many swipes at the coaches' poll this week because uh, they actually got one that we missed. They had Dubuque ranked, we had Central ranked, and you know we had, may have already mentioned how that turned out. Uh, I'm not sure that you, me, and Ryan Tips picking Central to get upset makes up for the rest of our voters there. Let's see. In terms of teams taking a fall in the top 25, let's see. There were a few places where you know, teams kind of continue to get adjusted. Um, in one case, let's see, Wheaton moving up caused St. John's to fall one point behind the Thunder and move down from 10 to 11, but even lower in the poll, definitely a case of Hobart falling after not being able to put away Merchant Marine on Saturday. They slide from 21 to 22. St. Lawrence, their conference mate, moves up from 25 to 21, and uh, we have to wait until Week 10 for those teams to meet.
1: Four teams that took a fall for me Christopher Newport, Utica, Huntingdon, they all fell out of the top 25 with losses. And Central and Dubuque were both on the fringe, and the Spartans clearly separated themselves with the 35 17 win. But a team that won, but I dropped on my ballot is St. John Fisher. I had the Cardinals ranked 15th last week. But this is now three wins in a row by less than a touchdown for St. John Fisher. So they still deserve to be considered for the top 25, but that's the kind of thing that portends danger down the road, maybe in a couple weeks at Utica or at season's end at Alfred. I've been pretty high on St. John Fisher until this week, and they are 5-0. So if you're still high on them, your opinion might well be valid.
0: We'll talk more about St. John Fisher in a minute, but uh, we're up to the interview portion of our podcast. And for the second consecutive week, a, a team in Division Three snapped a 22-game losing streak. This time, it was Allegheny, which defeated Oberlin 26-21 on Saturday. Adam Turr, our Around the Nation columnist, caught up with Gators first-year head coach B.J. Hammer, who talked about what the winnings for the program.
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's great. I mean, it's it's great for our kids and I think uh, all those upperclassmen that, that bought into changes and especially for our freshmen because uh, it wasn't easy. We tried to shoot ourselves in the foot a lot and they had to learn how to win and fight through the... Uh, the game so that was that was good to see i, I i'm kind of glad it was a tough hard fight win as opposed to one of those easy wins so i thought i think that was good for our guys but no it's great it feels good to win and you know coming come from where i came from when you're you're winning big games in the playoffs and things like that this it feels just like those you know and, and and that's that's what's special about football and that and i think our kids are gonna you know hopefully this will jump start them here for the future and for the rest of the season so yeah, and, and I mean, I, I know you've been selling that vision and, and selling, you know, what it takes to get to that level that you've been at, but, you know, how do you, how do you get the kids to buy in, you know, beyond just today? Right. Yeah, no, I, I think it's just it's a it's a process. Everything we've been doing since I got there and, and I think the big thing that Allegheny's been behind on is the strength and conditioning, off season off season buying stuff with all the all the weights you gotta lift, all the running you gotta do, all the stuff you need to do when it's not football season and they they understand that. I think that they want that and I mean, we're young Shoot, today. We started uh, 17 freshmen and sophomores in our first 22. That's not including the special team guys. So I, I, and I think when you're young like that, they just they want to buy in. They want to believe, and that's good. I mean, they're, they're doing that. Our young guys are. And like I said, the upperclassmen that are still with us they those guys really have done that. And they, they deserve to win more than anybody. And what was the reaction like, especially from those upperclassmen? You know, what, what did you see in, in their faces? Well, they were jacked. I mean, John McFarlane, who had a huge third-down catch. I mean, he's from, he's from California, actually, where I used to be coaching right down there. We were neighbors when he was younger, a little as a little kid. But uh, his entire family was in from California, so I know he was excited, obviously, to, to play the way he did with his family there. And then uh, John Nigro, who's our backup quarterback, had a huge uh, – did a great job holding on a field goal. We had kind of a loose snap, and he did a great job getting back in place so our kicker could get us. It. So it was a big play in the game. And, you know, just seeing those guys who haven't won a lot, you know, it, it makes – been really happy seeing them and a few of the others that are seniors and, and have worked hard and gone through, like I said, gone through the changes and have done a good job in the leadership role with our young guys and been been good good influences. So they they deserve it more than anybody.
1: One thing Coach Hammer said that that stood out to me is about the the upperclassmen who stick with a program that's frankly a you know a, a bad program, and you know when a new coaching staff comes in they they don't necessarily sweep out the the bad players, but look, um, or not the bad players, but players are going to drop out from a program that, you know, you're not winning. Um, and then staffs change. So you have now the coach that recruited you to that school is, is no longer part of the staff. And the guys who stay through that transition, I think, are some of the most honorable, I guess, for lack of a better term in uh, in D3. It reminds me, uh, listening to Coach Hammer talk, it reminded me of two around the nations that I wrote over the years, well, gosh, maybe 10, 12 years ago. Talk. One was talking to G.A. Mangus uh, at Delaware Valley when he, when he came through and turned that program around. And that program has remained a top 25, top 50 caliber program, ever, e- even though he's been gone in, in coaching in Division One for a long time. Um, one of the things that they did was they just, you know, they they got rid of, uh, so many upperclassmen because they had, I mean, this is not his words. This is my words. They had the the kind of losing stink on them, which is they, you know, you just get in bad habits. You get used to losing. Um, you know, you know, you, you haven't been kind of coached in in a, a year round. Positive attitude. You guys are working out. All this stuff. It, you know, it's, it's a year-round thing. And and if you don't have the leaders at the top of your program, it's hard to bring new freshmen into the program and have them uh, molded into the type of player that you want to have. So, um, we, what GA was talking about, if I remember correctly, ten years ago was just kind of clearing out so many of these the the older guys who had bad attitudes. And then I remember Matt Land at Trine talking about his uh, philosophy for for starting from scratch or turning over a new program which was load up the defense so you could keep scores down you could keep games close and you could create the perception of a turnaround when even when you didn't really have the talent yet to to be good enough on both sides of the ball but by putting all your talent on defense you kept you know the games looked a lot closer than they really would would be because he didn't have the talent on offense and so you know those are those are a couple of things that when you have a turnaround going on um the, the you know those are like two of the philosophies I guess that I remember learning over the years and I think you we just have to tip our hats to the uh to the older guys who stay in a program like Allegheny which had lost 22 straight games and had, had just gone from this national championship program in the '90s to to a, a 0 and 10 year after year program, and uh, and, and Coach Hammer starting to turn that around. And and there are a couple of guys even during a turnaround uh, who who have the attitude and stay. And those guys deserve to win as much as anyone else.
0: Yeah, I know when I'm doing kickoff uh, interviews every year, I'm talking with coaches about uh, kids moving from one side of the ball to the other. Um, you know when. Uh, especially when a a kid's coming in as a freshman, you know, you have a lot of options for where to put them. So when you're talking about loading up the defense, what you're saying is, you know, some of those guys who are tweeners who could play on either side of the ball, uh, you want to put more of them on the defensive side to kind of keep games manageable.
1: Yeah. And that's just one philosophy. That's not every coach's philosophy. But I remember hearing that from from trying and thinking, wow, that's pretty that's pretty clever because uh, yeah you're you're gonna have kids who are either a wide receiver or a defensive back or either a fullback or a, or a, or you know a running back or a linebacker guys who are offensive line defensive line and you put all your best athletes on defense and you you again that you you may not win that many games, but you create the perception that we're so close to this turnaround and you get the kids to buy in and by getting the players to buy in you know that that kind of fosters the atmosphere that you need to have a good offseason to bring in the next wave of recruits and actually build the program.
0: Well, I don't know when Allegheny gets uh, gets another win, but uh, certainly good for them to get that uh, losing streak off of their back. Um, Moving on to off the beaten path highlights, I'm going to go with St. John Fisher beating Buffalo State with its backup quarterback. Uh, as you know, reliable injury information is hard to come by, maybe sometimes even impossible in Division Three. So what we have is not super confirmed, shall we say. But it sounds like uh, Matt Naton has injured his hand and he's out for a couple weeks. That's the starting, the number one quarterback for the Cardinals. Uh, meanwhile, freshman Colin Fiutko got his first start and did all right for himself. He completed 15-22 for 209 yards and three scores in that win on saturday so saint john fisher has to get by morrisville uh then they have utica uh, and that's still a, a, a stern test even with utica's loss this week and then they have a bye week and maybe by that time uh we'll see uh, if we know a little bit more about what the quarterback situation looks like there
1: yeah for my off the beaten path highlight we could stay in new york for a 50 to 47 game but i'll save that for stat of the week there was a 60 to 47 game between east texas baptist and belhaven uh, obligatory Little 12 reference goes here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, but that wasn't even the day's most high-scoring game. Averitt and LaGrange put up a whopping 127 points in a four-overtime thriller that needed a score by each team in the final minute 24 to send it to overtime, tied at 48. They traded touchdowns in the first two overtimes. Then Averitt freshman Cole Westbury misses wide left from 42. Oh, no. He's the GOAT, Right. But the Cougars' defense, after having given up 62 points already, seizes the day. Seth Brendel intercepts LaGrange quarterback Connor Blair to bail out Westbury and send it to a fourth overtime. And Octavius Ross intercepts Blair again on LaGrange's next possession. Averitt at this point has gained 618 yards, but in the fourth overtime, they can only manage six more. So it trots out Westbury, the kicker who would missed from 42, to win it from 36. And it wouldn't be the
0: -the off-the-beaten-path highlight if he didn't come through. Keith, uh, would uh, a forty-two yard field goal attempt in overtime? You know what that always says to me is team we goes gained no yards. That's right. Team goes three and out, and you send the kicker out to try to salvage something out of it. Right, because the possession start at the twenty-five. You add ten yards uh, for the end zone
1: and seven yards for the snap. There's your your twenty-five plus seventeen. There's your forty-two yard attempt. So overtime, you you start with a forty-two yard attempt, and while in the NFL that may be uh, you know 85 percent ninety percent. I, I don't know the, the, the percentages. That's a, it could be a dicey range depending on the quality of your kicker in D3. 30%, 25% in
0: Division three. Yeah.
1: yeah. We should probably uh, check that stat at some point. Sure, sure. Crazily enough, that Averett lagrange game was not the only four-overtime game of the day as Widener added a chapter to its storied history against Lycoming with a four-overtime 24-21 win. In that one... The teams combined to go 8 of 37 on third downs. Lycoming didn't pass 100 yards rushing or passing, and Widener fumbled seven times, although they only lost two, and racked up 16 penalties. The teams proved that just because your game takes four extra frames to decide doesn't mean it was a good game.
0: It doesn't have a it doesn't have a ball clanking off the left upright to decide a 50-49 game. It doesn't have a uh, a shovel pass by a holder on a blocked field goal or extra point or whatever that was. Yeah,
1: so hey, you're digging way into the Leico Widener history.
0: Well, I didn't even talk about the fifteen to three game that inspired us to start this site in the first place back in nineteen ninety eight. The thing that made us say, okay, we can't ignore football any longer. This Division three basketball thing's pretty cool, but football. Yeah. Most surprising highlight, uh, I have to go with a game that didn't even start until after most uh, Division Three fans had probably tuned out for the night. And that was Pomona Pitzer not just beating Chapman, but doing it in dominating fashion, 35-7. Uh, first time the Sagehens have beaten the Panthers since the uh, Panthers joined the Sky uh, in fact, uh, they last beat them in 2005, and that was the only win since Chapman restarted football in 1994. And really, if, if you're in an NCA tournament pool with someone who picks games based on the ferocity of the mascot, you would never have picked a chicken over a wild cat. And yeah, stop calling me Indianapolis. I'm not endorsing NCA pools either. There's no gambling here in the course of this podcast, um, except maybe trying to reach the one-hour limit. Story of the night, and that game boils down to turnovers. Chapman threw five interceptions, and uh, Pomona Pitzer turned two of them into touchdowns, but none of them were cheapies. Sage hens had two 80-yard drives, and all of their scoring drives in that win were 56 yards or longer.
1: Today I learned that although a wolverine is not a wolf, a sage hen is in fact a chicken. (laughs) It is indeed. My most surprising result uh, goes to Marietta, which got its first win of the season and first against an OAC team other than Wilmington or Muskingum since 2011 by breaking a 56-all tie on a 14-play game-winning drive against Baldwin-Wallace. The Pioneers had scored 10 points together in the previous two weeks and were coming off a 28-10 loss at Muskingum in which they gained only 241 yards. Baldwin-Wallace, meantime, looked decent for stretches of last week's loss against Mountain Union. Nothing foreshadowed a 624 yard explosion in which Marietta scored at least two touchdowns in every quarter. The 62 56 final was flabbergasting, right? If you can be flabbergasted, something can be flabbergasting, can it?
0: Yeah, I think. I don't think you even have to get charged for making up a word. I'm the only one who makes up words on the podcast, right?
1: I, I think we're pretty even on the on the words being made up, but you know, today we've learned about sage hens and the conjugations. That's not a conjugation of flabbergasting.
0: It, I I think it is a conjugation, isn't it? I don't know. Someone's going to post that in the comments. Someone posted about our Compass and Protractor conversation last week, by the way. Did Did they really? Yeah.
1: Hey, they're really listening. How about that?
0: Even after all of that, I think I still screwed something up uh, about Compass and Protractor, and I got called out on it. So I thought I had my uh, my, uh, sixth-grade math well in hand, and clearly I did not. Um let's see let's move on to something more advanced statistically my stat of the week uh comes from Wesley where they have a reputation for playing some pretty undisciplined football but I'd have to think the Wolverines win at Southern Virginia on Saturday not only takes the cake but eats it too I'm mixing my metaphors not making up words uh Wesley was called for 19 penalties for a total of 167 yards so the Wolverines won 63-9, to but the penalty situation just out of hand. Uh, one drive in particular, Wesley hit a first-and-goal at the 9. Then they got called for back-to-back false start penalties and took a timeout. So now it's first-and-goal from the 19. Nick Falkenberg, the uh, backup quarterback in because this is the second half of a blowout, lost six yards in the next play. Wesley followed with another false start. So now it's a second-and-goal from the 30. Still with me? Yeah, one play, three false starts. Uh Wolverine's second attempt at second down is called back because of holding. And so now Wesley's facing second and goal from the 40. Uh incomplete pass on second down, and another false start on third and goal from the 40 makes it third and goal from the 45. And at, at that point it, it hardly matters, but the Wolverine's picked up nine yards and punted on fourth down, of course, into the end zone. Um I watched some of this just to try to get a picture of what exactly was happening. These are legitimate no-brainer false start calls. One. Uh, is when uh, the team doesn't get set for a second. They rush up to the line and then snap it, but they don't, uh, they don't stay set. Uh, secondly, um, you the know, uh, uh, right guard is so eager to pull that uh, he's doing it well before the snap ever comes. It's, it was just a mess.
1: Yeah, maybe I should have let you do your stat of the week second this time around. Although, my stat of the week, fairly amazing as well. Hartwick scored 27 points in the second quarter and lost. They led Cortland by a touchdown or more six times during the game, including once by as many as 16, and the Red Dragons rallied for the 50-47 win. Hartwick gained 684 yards, held the ball for 38 minutes, 24 seconds, and did not win. Now, I'm not trying to rub it in. I'm just amazed. It's a team game, though, and there's a defense at Everett that gave up 62 points and feels good about itself, and there's one at Christopher Newport, which held Rowan at 10 points and 256 yards and took the longest somber bus trip back to newport news
0: it's like five and a half or six hours and uh all through the night because that's a that was an evening game that was probably not very fun for the captains uh let's take a look at our predictions from last week coming out of quick hits um let's see uh we're gonna start with the bad ones i always get to talk about the bad ones uh i'm often in the bad ones uh the last couple weeks anyway for example i picked Rhodes and suwanee you know that's the battle for the Orgill Cup or Orgil Cup, I don't even know how to pronounce it, um, as a rivalry that would get new life this season. And I'm not sure if a 15-point game qualifies. Uh, Rhodes won that one, 36-21. Uh, Frank Rossi picked Whitewater and Platteville as a competitive rivalry that would go off the rails. Um it did not work out, and as a group, we were kind of 50-50 as to who would make a statement in the Jack, I missed on Kane, uh, Adam, and Ray Biggs, who was our guest prognosticator, picked Christopher Newport, um, and they neither of those teams made a positive statement, at least in the Jack. Yeah, well, sorry
1: to hear about the worst predictions from Quick Hits, but if it makes you feel any better, we had some good predictions as well. Four of us, present company included, picked Central as the most likely team to be upset. We know how that turned out. Biggs, uh, he picked Hobart. And was nearly the most prescient prognosticator of the day. Five of us correctly picked the 4-0 team that would lose. Trying to pick a once quality competitive rivalry that would go off the rails. I picked St. John's Bethel. I don't know if it went right off the rails, but 42-27. Pat, you hit on Bridgewater, Hampton, Sydney. That game certainly isn't what it used to be. Ray hit on RPI Rochester. And, you know, not quite sure what to make of uh Franklin and Marshall beating Dickinson 20 to 10. So perhaps that's a push for Ryan and Adams.
0: Sounds good. I'll, I'll take a push.
1: Now, I I did... I'll pat myself on the back here. I did take Rowan over CNU in the Jack Ryan took Frostburg State over Kane. That's Ryan Tips. Um, and Frank. Well, Frank took the obvious pick of Wesley over Southern Virginia. Not sure that beating Southern Virginia 63-9 even counts as a statement, but we'll throw him a bone here. And all of us, on top of all that, picked close and or exciting games as a game of the week, so... Read quick, hits on Friday.
0: Yeah, I think you would have gotten a a pretty good understanding uh, of where the uh, week was going to go if you were watching and reading that on Friday mornings or Friday afternoons or Saturday mornings on your way to the game. Uh, We got out our request for uh, questions uh, from fans on Twitter a little earlier this time, so we did get uh, an actual response in time that we could use. uh, And uh, at Nicholas A. Jones writes, how much better is the WIAC than all the other conferences? Doesn't even really seem close. And I feel the need to point out here that uh, Jones is a Mary Harden Baylor fan, so it 's not like he 's just fishing for a compliment. Um, the, it does seem Keith, that uh, at least right now, uh, based on you know what the teams have done so far this year and with non conference play complete in the Wyack, this is maybe the best Wyack that I remember seeing
1: yeah and and this is the way I always explain it, and you know don 't stop me if, if you 've heard this before, Pat uh, Wisconsin as a state, it has um, Wisconsin Madison, the big school, and that's pretty much it. There's no D. Uh, what do we call it now? FCS. FCS. Yeah. There's no FCS presence. There's no Division two presence. So it's Madison and the D three schools. Now there's a bunch of D two schools in um, Minnesota and the Northern Sun Conference and some pretty good ones actually. Uh, there's schools in North Dakota on the other on the other side that you know will probably recruit Wisconsin. Uh oh, that's my my geography is a little off there. But um <laughs> It's all right. The basically Wisconsin, one of the reasons why the yAC is so good is because anyone who doesn't go D1, or let's say anyone who doesn't go scholarship, who doesn't get get pulled over to Minnesota, doesn't get pulled into um, you know, isn't good enough to to get recruited to, to go somewhere in the Big Ten, a lot of those kids fall down to uh to WAC schools. And because they're state schools, they're affordable, uh, they're fairly I don't say easy to get into, but students can get into the, to a lot of the schools, and so it's you know it has all the benefits. It could be great football, it could be close to home, or you could be a couple hours from home but still in state. Uh, you can afford it. You can get in. You know wh- what's not to like? Whereas you take a state like Pennsylvania, take a state like Virginia. Where Pennsylvania has you know I don't know fifteen or twenty uh, D three teams plus. Uh, 12 D2 teams, you know, the PSAC is, is huge. Virginia, a lot of kids that may be on the fence between being a really good D3 player or being a marginal 1AA or a marginal FCS player, those guys end up at University of Richmond or James Madison or, you know, Old Dominion uh, if you're from Virginia. So I think one of the big reasons the yac is such a good conference, and and this is, you know, that that's kind of an abstract thought, not even saying like, oh, well, they're good because... You know, they they beat the CCIW all the time. They're just good because any kid who's not scholarship level clearly often ends up in the WIAC. And it just, even though they have 100 man roster limits, the cream just rises to the top. And when you have a good coach and you can recruit whoever you want, you know, you're able to build good programs.
0: Yeah, and those roster limits have been eased over the last couple of years. Although I don't have the details in front of me, um, I think one of the things that makes the WIAC and the state of Wisconsin different than a lot of other state school conferences in Division three is, you know, the is what Keith mentioned about uh, the the gap between uh, the the Division one FBS school the in the you know in a BCS conference. Do we still call them BCS conferences? I think the word is Power Five now. Power Five conferences. Sorry about that. Um, And and the the gap between them and and the Division Three schools. So when people simplify it down to, oh, well, it's because they're a state school. It's like we have so many state schools in Division Three that are not nearly as uh, powerful as the WIAC. And, you know, even then again, too. I didn't hear anybody complaining about uh, how great the Wyack was and how unfair it was that the Wyack was so good from, you know, 1999 to 2004 when that conference as a whole won like one playoff game combined in those uh, six years. So it's really only because uh, Berezowicz and Whitewater broke through for a couple of years, uh, built that uh, program into a Purple Power type program, and now all of a sudden it's a, it's a thing again.
1: Yeah, and I, I think this is something that we've heard over the years is that when you have a Mountain Union or a Whitewater uh, or, or even a Linfield or Mary Harden Baylor in your conference, it, it lifts the tide, right? All boats rise or everyone must clear the bar or chase, raise the bar for everyone. Pick a cliche. You know what I'm trying to say, right? I think you mixed like
0: three cliches there. Yeah, yeah
1: I, I thought that was you know, half the fun, right? If you're still with the podcast at this point, you should get something new out of it. Um, but now you have Pat Cerrone who's built something at, at Oshkosh. A, a program that can compete yep. year, year in and year out with Whitewater. Emmendorfer now has got Platteville on a level where it can compete with Whitewater. You know, on Saturday, they, they lose a 30-24 game, but they're, they're right in the game in the fourth quarter. So, you know, you, to simply extrapolate that, if, if, if you have three programs that are Whitewater level, then you have three programs that could theoretically uh, be as good as any program in the country.
0: Thanks, uh, Nicholas A. Jones, for that question. Uh, you can always tweet us. You can tweet Keith at at D3Keith. You tweet me at, at D3Football. Um, if you give us a respectful question, we'll give you a respectful answer. If you come at us with some snark, hey, you, you never know uh, what you might get out of us on any given day. I'm not as snarky as I used to be. Well, that's
1: a, speaking of setting the bar, your two-minute drill begins now.
0: All right, starting the clock on the two minute drill, and Keith's leading us off.
1: Guilford scored 56 points or eight touchdowns in the first 23 minutes of a
0: 59 0 win against Catholic on Saturday. Yeah, thanks. We had to start with that. All right. Uh, Bellhaven finally opened its on campus stadium, and that opened with a pretty good game as Bellhaven was within a touchdown of East Texas Baptist twice in the fourth quarter before the Tigers pulled away for a 60 47 win.
1: Ithaca, which had scored 23 points total in its first three games, was a most surprising result honorable mention by scoring 23 in a nine-point upset of Utica.
0: Uh, we haven't mentioned Wheaton giving getting its offensive mojo working, so let's be sure to touch on that before we go. Andrew Bowers, that's the quarterback who won the rotation battle. He went 28-35 of 35 for 351 yards and four scores in a 48-24 win at Illinois Wesleyan. Uh, IWU led, and uh, Wheaton scored the final 34 points of that game.
1: Yeah, finally impressive win for the Thunder. Yep. After starting the season with four home games and three pretty tough D3 opponents, including uh, Illinois Wesleyan, Nebraska Wesleyan went on the road to get its first uh, Iowa Conference win, and its first since coming over to D3 full-time, 27-24 against Luther.
0: See, all Nebraska Wesleyan had to do to win a game since moving to the Iowa Athletic Conference is go play a game actually in Iowa. Uh, Framingham State lost a conference game for the first time in the CAC after winning its first 26. Mass Dartmouth picked off the Corsairs 35-34 running it in on a two-point conversion in overtime for the victory.
1: Man, I need to listen to the podcast. I didn't even catch that one. Uh, Columbus, Ohio area rivals Capital and Otterbein they played a nail-biter. Won when the Crusaders scored with 209 left and converted a totally unnecessary two-point conversion to win 42-41. But that kept with the strategy Capital had employed all day as the Crusaders went for two after all six of their touchdowns and made three of them. So it evened out at exactly the
0: right time. Capital soccer players, there's a job open for you. Olivet won at Hope 15-13 in a game delayed by lightning. Last two times Olivet has won at Hope for years. The Comets went on to win the MIAA title in 2007 and 1974, and we're out of two-minute drill.
1: Plymouth State missed a P.A.T. Yeah. in overtime, and its magical run to start the season ended...
0: It just deleted it out of the uh, out of the rundown. <laughs> you, we can't go overtime. We're already we're already so long. What? And there was four overtime game this week. We can go one
1: overtime. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Coming up, Plymouth Max- State. They were undefeated. Now they're not anymore.
0: <laughs> That's your takeaway from uh, the. <laughs> yeah. All right. Sorry. Um, so next week, uh, we have uh, YX Showdown Round 2, uh, as I mentioned, Whitewater hosting Othco- Oshkosh. Keith, I have to think Whitewater comes in a little better prepared for this one by their schedule so far, just because they played a top-10 team in the NAIA, a top-10 team in D3 the past two weeks, along with TCNJ in Bellhaven. Oshkosh, you know, they played John Carroll. That was a month ago. Uh, and they played two second-year programs in the interim, and they played Stout on Saturday. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're right on,
1: especially having Whitewater having played Morningside and Platteville the past couple of weeks. They're certainly better prepared. The, the guys mentally will be in focus. But you could you could flip it and use the same logic. You know, we could make a logic pretzel uh, and say, logic Hey, Oshkosh hasn't hasn't had to try all that hard. They they're probably not. They're probably pretty healthy. They're probably pretty fresh and, and ready for this uh, Whitewater matchup.
0: And they do know who their quarterback is, so they got that going for them. Um, Elsewhere, uh, you know, uh, Keith, stop me if you want to talk about any of these games in more detail. Otherwise, I'm seeing an hour coming up here. Uh, Heidelberg's at Mount Union. Uh, St. Thomas travels to Concordia-Moorhead. Pacific hosts Linfield. Uh, We mentioned Platteville's at Stevens Point. Hardin-Simmons at at Louisiana College. It's a game that we might not have circled based on last year's results for Louisiana College, but they've been playing better again this year.
1: Yeah, and and Hardin-Simmons, right now a team that's in the top 10 but hasn't had to... to beat anyone um, that, that's really highly ranked and, and still won't against Louisiana College, but uh, kind of flying under the radar.
0: Uh, we mentioned earlier Rowan hosts Salisbury. Uh, Depause at Wittenberg, that's a key North Coast uh, Conference matchup. RPI hosting Hobart and uh, Central is at Co. Um, in the pack, W and J host Carnegie Mellon. Uh, SAA Hendricks, uh, newly in the top twenty-five, they go to Birmingham Southern and Bellevue. They have the annual long bus ride to Selra State. That's just a nine hundred mile, thirteen-hour drive. I could still try to get you to Jackson, Mississippi, and get you on that bus. Adam her job now. I know, isn't that awesome? None of us has to take that bus ride. I, we had talked, I and we've talked about this on the podcast too. So I know this is repetitive, but once upon a time we had talked about putting keith on the bus from uh i think at that point it was uh, mississippi college or louisiana college to sell ross state uh, the longest bus ride in division three yep I, I bet
1: you could real you could tell some amazing stories from that or just especially if someone just opens up the bus ride to you but also just dealing with d3 and kind of what life on the road is like you know you may get like a seven dollar per diem and you get to go to burger king on <laughs> the way hell. you know like it's not yeah. it's not living living large you're just you're getting by but you do it for the love of the game uh the one game you did mention in there pat that i think is really worth circling next week um it, it kind of goes with the theme of what we talked about with dennison and with westminster is pacific hosting linfield a chance for a program that's been knocking on the door to break through with a victory against an elite established team
0: I'm not going to mention the score of the game from last year because I was there and I lived through it. Uh, And that was the Around the Nation podcast, number 156, for the week of October 3rd, 2016. Thanks for listening and tune in for the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it. Leave us a review. That will help other football fans find it. And thanks. For following division three football at d3football.com the executive producer of the around the nation podcast is pat coleman production assistance provided by dave McHugh. thanks to our guest BJ hammer for his time on this edition of our show and of course to uh, adam Turr for bringing that audio to us also thanks to the creator of around the nation on d3football.com and my co-host keith mcmillan catch us every week now uh through december 19th then monthly in the off season and always remember to use the D3FB hashtag on your tweets and Instagram posts. And I did. I took originator out of the script and I replaced it with creator. Because I can say creator in a hurry.
1: Hey, uh, I fumbled over my fair share of words this week, so, Yeah. But I did get Flabbergasted. Flabbergasted.